I've mentioned a few times the incredible music scene that was based around Laurel Canyon in L.A. in the mid to late 60s, home to people like Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills and Nash, the Mamas and the Papas, Linda Ronstadt. I could go on for ages, to be honest. And uh, not only produced loads of hits and hit albums, but entire music genres. To tell us more, I'm joined by Michael Walker, author of Laurel Canyon, the inside story of rock and roll's legendary neighbourhood. He joins now. Michael, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. You actually live on Laurel Canyon, don't you? I do, yeah. I've lived there for about 20 years. Um, that's kind of where I got the idea to do the book, because there, there's a store in Laurel Canyon called the Laurel Canyon Country Store, and it's sort of like, as one of the guys in the book described it, it's like the lobby of the Laurel Canyon Hotel. That's where everybody still kind of gathers in the mornings. You go there, people are, you can have coffee there, and you can sit on the, on the front deck and watch the traffic roar by on Laurel Canyon Boulevard. But there's... The people down there are always saying, God, somebody should write a book about this place. And I was a journalist, so I said, you know what, I'll do it. <laughs> no one else had done it yet. Great. And I wrote an essay for the uh, Los Angeles Times Magazine called Still Hazy After All These Years. And that got a really good reception. And um, I, had a, I, I based a book proposal on that, and I got the book deal off of that. And about a year after that, this is in 2006, uh, the book was published and, and it was very well received along the West Coast especially. Not surprising. The, the roll call of the people who've lived literally on your road and, and made music there, it's startling, isn't it? Um, Joni yeah, Mitchell, I, I, Neil Young. Yeah, it, it's, it, you know, I could just, you know, there's David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Graham Nash, Joni Mitchell. That's all on one street, by the way. Frank Zappa, who lived next door to Joni Mitchell. Arthur Lee of Love. Don Henley and Glenn Frey later to form the Eagles. Jim Morrison sort of wandered in and out, as, as was his want. He, he wasn't too keen on fixed addresses, but he lived in a place that, across from the Canyon Country Store, uh, and it was on a little muse, and he just wrote a song about it called Love Street, and there's a line in Love Street, he goes, there's a store where the creatures meet, and that's, he was talking about the Lowell Canyon Country Store. So, you know, it, the Lowell Canyon affected these musicians literally, it went into their lyrics, but it also affected just the sort of strange alchemy that they all had when they came together. And the other thing that's remarkable is almost none of these people were from Los Angeles. David Crosby had grown up in Santa Barbara, but by and large, these are people who had come from New York, uh, from Washington, D.C., from Chicago, and in Graham Nash's case, from London. They all gravitated to this one, like, two-square-mile area in a canyon in the middle of Los Angeles. And it was a great example of the, you know, musicians and artists needing to breathe the same air. And they did, and, and the results are just spectacular. What was it about Laurel Canyon that was attracting so many people, uh, and artists in particular? It was, well, Laurel Canyon has always been a, an artist colony, going back into the 1920s. It was, a, it was a bohemian neighborhood pretty much all of its, throughout most of its existence. It had been originally staked out by developers in the 19-teens and 20s as a place where you could go to uh, maybe cool off a bit. And, and, and this, it's a little bit cooler there. The elevation's around 1,000 feet versus the Bay, L.A. Basin, which is, you know, it was a place say you could have like a vacation home or a hunting, cu- hunting cabin. And so that's where all these little kind of Hansel and Gretel cottages had been put up. And by the 60s, the neighborhood had kind of gone a little seedy, and it was therefore easy to rent stuff very cheaply. So that's one of the reasons it became popular. It was a place where you could get, you could have rent a house for you know, a couple hundred bucks a month or something. Right. So that helped. If you're a starving artist, that, that definitely puts a spin on it. But I think it was also sort of like, a, a, you know, this is pre-social media, pre-even touch-tone phones. The word kind of went out that that's where, this was a generation that was finding itself and finding each other. They were finding each other in New York, in the Greenwich Village, in, in San Francisco, in the Hate, And in Los Angeles, it, at, at Venice Beach, that's where the rest of the doors tended to come from, from Jim Morrison's band. 
But Laurel Canyon became one of those places, and the word sort of went out, and it was, things were happening, and they were happening in Laurel Canyon. And the, the magnetic pull of that, um, you know, just through people writing letters to each other or making phone calls, saying, you got to get out here, you got to get out here. And when they got here, most of them really had nothing. They didn't have any money, and they had no gigs. Record companies didn't understand what they were trying to do. But they kind of did it. It was like an early version of DIY. They did it themselves for the most part. I mean, John Phillips had already written California Dream in New York uh, with Michelle Phillips one rainy night. It was cold night. They were missing California. So he woke her up and said, here, write down these lyrics. I'll give you half the publishing. (laughs) And that was one of the songs that he had in the suitcase when he got here. So these people had just tremendous amounts of talent and ambition. And when they all kind of got in the same sort of gene pool, they said before the results speak for themselves. And right. We're still talking about it 50 years later. Yeah, and they did really mingle. They, they did go from one person's house to the next, and there were genuinely sessions where they'd gather around and play guitar together. And in that session, you'd see Joni Mitchell, the bones of Crosby, Stills and Nash, and and just unbelievable talents. Yeah, the, the, the I can't tell you how many times people told me stories of these, these serendipitous encounters that you're, you're walking down the street and you see Stephen Stills is coming down the street. Hey, come on, we're, we're working on a song. So you go into his house and there's David Crosby, maybe. Maybe there's Graham Nash. And there's, you know, uh, it, it, and it was a very egalitarian thing. You know, Mickey Dolan's from the Monkees lived there. And so he was next door to all these people. So you have this tribe of people sort of commingling and collaborating. And there was, this was before the money got big. And so there was, everyone was just trying to make it. Everyone was trying to help each other out. And it really was, it, it sounds sort of, you know, through, you know, paisley colored glasses, I guess. But it, it really was uh, a, a great community for a while. And then when the money came in, uh, that sort of changed things. The success started happening for people. They'd be out on the road more. And then the community started to fragment a little okay. bit. But in those, first, in those first moments, it was quite remarkable. Right. Um, I, there are, so I get the impression there were certain kind of movers in amongst them. One of them is Joni Mitchell. Joni is kind of, she seems to be a magnet for a lot of the talent that was going there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, David Crosby kind of introduced her to the canyon. He produced her first album and kind of discovered her, although she was already on the road and doing things, um, in Florida. And she moved to L.A. And then eventually she and Graham ended up in her in her little cottage, which is she, I believe she still owns on, uh, in, in Laurel Canyon. But that was, you know, she was such an original talent that she was doing things that no one else was doing. And she had polio as a child and affected the way that she could make chords on the guitar. So all her voicings on the guitar were just completely novel. And that was just knock these guys out. They had never heard uh, lyrics like hers or just melodies and chord changes like hers. And so, yeah, the other person who was sort of, if you want to be the queen of Laurel Canyon, uh, although she was far too nice to be Calitarian for that, was Cass Elliot. Cass Elliot's house was where everybody went. Um, that that was the magnet for all, for the, as Graham Nash told me, he said, well, when things were going good, you wanted to go to Cass's house to celebrate. When things were not going so well, you wanted to go to Cass's house for some, you know, she kept some some, blood, some tea and sympathy and, and maybe some really, really good dope on top of that. Right. Um, there is in all in all of this a kind of question of who is it exactly that gets Crosby, Stills and Nash together? Um, mm-hmm. Who are we going to go with? Yeah, it's, it's plenty of people remember it that they sang together for the first time at Joni's house. Uh, Graham remembers it that way. But others say, I think with equal credibility, that they actually met for the first time. They all knew each other. They never really sung together before uh, at, at, uh, at Cass Elliott's house. And Cass, the story goes that Cass 
uh, was friends with Graham. He knew he was very unhappy in, in the holidays. And he was in town in L.A. with the Hollies on tour, probably in like 67 or 68. And she called him up and said, uh, I'm going to go down to, to the hotel. I want you to meet some people. And so he, he, she picked him up and took him to, uh, to up to her house. And waiting at her house, she already pre-planned this clearly were David Crosby and Stephen Stills. So they were waiting for them, and they, they hey, how are we to introduce each other? And she knew that Stephen and David were trying to form a new band, and she asked them, do you think you need a third voice? And they said, yeah, sure. So this is how Graham ended up there. And so she kind of stage managed this whole this whole wow. thing, and she knew that they couldn't resist showing up their new songs to Graham. So he started playing the song, You Don't Have to Cry. And Graham listened to it once, and he goes, that's such, can you play it again? So they played it again, and he said, here, can you play for me one more time? They're kind of going, who does this guy think he is? And he played again, and then he added his third voice. He added the, the, the third harmony to their voices. And, and they said, there was a guy that was there, uh, Gary Burden, who was an architect, soon become an album cover designer, unfortunately died last year. But Gary told me that he said it was just electric. When he when Graham laid in his voice, it was just, you knew, it was that instantly apprehensible Crosby, Stills, and Nash sound. And the amazing thing was that it stunned the musicians so much, what Graham told me, was that Cass heard that in her head. She was such a good harmony singer. She could hear what they said would sound like even before they did. So you can, if if in fact that, even if it did happen to Joni Costley, Cass, I think, kind of masterminded the fact that these guys needed to sing together. Wow. What, what you wouldn't have given to be a fly on the wall the first time those voices come together. Yeah. God. It was amazing. There's another aspect to this, that accompanying them to the Valley um, are two of people who become enormously successful in the world of, of music management. David Geffen and Elliot Roberts. And from what I can see of them, they seem to be as in it whilst they're able to look after the money side. But they're also quite driven for, uh, uh, am I being naive to say, pure reasons, but they love the music. They did. They were they were an outgrowth of the fact that their the record business was not keeping up with, with the times at all. They, they they understood the Beatles, but they did not for a minute understand what was happening in L.A. right under their noses. And there was emerging a need for management uh, that, that could serve these artists that were street. They knew the music. They knew the culture. They looked the same. You know, they dressed the same. They talked the same. Uh, they could communicate with each other. That was needed, and Elliot Roberts and David Geffen stepped in to fill that void because both of them had worked at the mailroom in William Morris, you know, in New York, and they moved out to L.A. and they were they were, they were going to William Morris saying, "Look, you really should sign these people." And they said, "You know, stick to stick to movies. They're essentially movie agents." They said, "We don't want to hear about this rock and roll, so just leave it alone." So they went into business for themselves, and they they found what was called lookout management, and they represented all of the Laurel Canyon musicians, the big ones, CSNY. Uh, Joni, all those people, we came under Elliot and uh, and David's, you know, their umbrella, and that was really smart. They were like the Brian Epstein of yeah. Liverpool in '64. That's what those guys were in Laurel Canyon '67, '68, '69, and they brokered the deals with the record companies and the touring companies that got these guys some serious money. And they were really on top of it. They were really, really sharp guys at the right place at the right time. But you know, they were they were they they. The record company people by the time were in their 40s and 50s that these people were dealing with. They just did not understand it. And they didn't want to understand it. Right. They, they were pushing it away. These guys pushed through with it. And that if they, those guys hadn't been there, it, things could have turned out quite differently. They really could, because, you know, Dave Geffen in particular sets up Asylum Records, sets up Geffen Records as well, yeah. and has the golden touch, the golden ear, hasn't he? Yeah. And that and he built that into, a you know, a, a, obviously a, a huge career. Um, Elliot stayed 
Elliot Roberts did more just on the management side, but David became you know an entertainment industry mogul because he had good ears, and so did especially Elliot. Elliot actually was managing Joni. I mean, before she got to Laurel Canyon, uh, he had heard her and he just totally believed in her. So they had you know the music business always says you know so and so has got great ears. Those guys definitely had the great ears, and they served as a conduit between the old fashioned record companies and the new musicians. And then within two or three years. Things that, uh, you know, record companies were hiring younger, younger executives, um, and they realized just how much money they could make. That's, that was the other thing. No one knew how big this business could be, and these L.A. artists were the ones that really, really pushed and made that change. Right. They all, they all go on to unbelievable success and millions of sales. Yeah. Um, what kind of brings it to an end? Is it, it seems there's a, a range of factors could be at play. They all become successful for a start. They might want to move away. Or just getting older. Is it a combination of the two, or...? Yeah, I think there's there was um, Cindy Lauper had that great song. Money changes everything, and this <laughs> and in this case it did. They were the, the success that they had in many cases was rather sudden. Like the birds were, you know, out of the gate had a you know an international number one, several international number one hits, and then, and the songwriters in the birds made some very serious money. So all of a sudden, they're you're getting like Beatles level money, and which was all these guys wanted to do anyway was be the Beatles. <laughs> to get girls. That was their whole rationale for getting into this in the first place besides their talent. But when the money came, they started moving out of the canyon because, logically enough, they need to shelter their income and buy some real estate. And these weren't very comfortable places to live. And the other thing, they were constantly on the road. That's what people don't take into consideration quite so much in why the community fragmented was they just didn't see each other anymore. Right. You know, they, used to, they used to see each other at every Monday night at the Troubadours on Hoot Night, that was when anybody could play one song. You know, that, was, that was like a, another clearinghouse. In addition to Laurel Canyon, you could hitchhike down to the Troubadours, it was only like a, a mile away. It was like a big clubhouse. And the club started to fragment because you know, these guys were starting to you know, become major international artists, and they were gone all the time. The other thing that changed with the money was the, the drug menu in the canyon went from pot and LSD, which, as Mark Volman of the Turtles told me, he said, look, those are shareable drugs. Those are things you want to do, do with people and talk to people. And cocaine came in. And that was the late 60s into the early 70s when cocaine became the drug of choice because it was expensive and somewhat exclusive. It, it, it just changed the entire character of the canyon. And the sharing kind of stopped and people started, you know, buying really pure cocaine and cutting it just enough and giving the cut stuff to the people they didn't like so much. And right. The inner circle. It was very divisive. And so the harder, the scourge of harder drug use really took a toll on the innocents. That's sort of like, I mean, the, the book, the Laurel Canyon book is divided into the first half of the book I called um, Jingle Jangle Mornings, after the Bob Dylan song and Birds Hit. And the second half of the book is called Cocaine Afternoons from the Jackson Brown song. Um, right. and that really was sort of the dimming of Laurel Canyon. Okay. I saw um, David Crosby being interviewed once. He said, um, we were there uh, post-birth control and pre-AIDS. What a time to be alive. Yeah, well, that's yeah, there really was, that, that was not a, you know, that was just before an era where, you know, drugs are bad and sex can kill you. Um, neither one of those messages were being, yes. were being delivered back then. It was no. a time of, I, when I do readings for the book, um, a lot of really young women come to these things, and they, I asked them, you know, why, why does this scene fascinate you so much? And they just said, Dude, you don't understand, she said, we'll never have this. And I said, well, yeah, you can have it. No. We'll never have this. So that, you know, Gen Z and the millennials look at the scene in Laurel Canyon as a, a time of incredible personal freedom, especially
especially for the women, I think. They see that, it's a, it's a, that they feel that they can't build themselves right now. Uh, and maybe they can't, but I, it's very, very attractive to that generation, which surprised me because I thought they would be they'd just be too old for them. But no, they, they're very much into it. And I think for, for the right reasons, they realize how, what a rare moment that was. And they wish they could experience it. Too. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's not just the life, but you can, you can sense the collaborations that were going on musically that everyone was willing to share and show things to each other and, and try and learn from each other. And it, it just meant when, the, when they came away from the table, they'd all learned so much, which is in their music to this day. Incredible. Um, yeah, yeah. Michael, thank you very much uh, for talking to us. Michael Walker, author of the book, is called sure. Laurel Canyon, the inside story of rock and roll's legendary neighbourhood. And Michael said if you're in LA, he'll put you up in Laurel Canyon himself, which is <laughs> very decent. All him. right. Yeah, uh, deal. <laughs> yes. Uh, Michael, thanks no, very much for joining us. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen. There are going to be a few songs on the show tonight that I have to say I would have, I'd give 
what exactly? I'd give part of my body. What part would I give? Would I give a finger, a hand? I don't know. Your right arm is what goes to your mind, but let's let's start small and negotiate from there. But what you wouldn't have given to a written song like that? And apparently, the story behind it is so simple. Graham Nash was living at Johnny Mitchell. They literally went down from Laurel Canyon to the local shop, bought some flowers on the way home. Said it's getting cold. You light the fire, and I'll get a vase for the flowers we bought today. And said let's put that to music. And the next thing they have that 